You're listening to Just One of the Guys, the podcast about comic books that isn't afraid to drop some science on your ass. Faux shizzle. Whatever that means. Harmony with Harmony. Entropy, how can I explain it? I'll take it brain by brain it and have you all jump and shove and saying it. Let's just say that it's a measure of disorder in a system that is closed. Like with the border, it's sort of like a well measurement of randomness proposed in 1850 by a German, but wait, I digress. What the fuck is entropy? I hear the people still exclaiming. It seems I could start the explaining. You ever drop an egg and on the floor you see it break? You go and get a mop so you can clean up your mistake. But if you ever stop to ponder why we know it's true, if you drop a broken egg, you will not get an egg that's new. That's entropy or ENTR over the D of the Y. The reason why the sun will one day all burn out and die. Order from disorder is a scientific rarity. Allow me to explain it with a little bit more clarity. Did I say rarity? I meant impossibility. At least in the closed system there will always be more entropy. That's entropy and I hope that you're all done with it. If you are, here's your membership. You done with entropy? Yeah, you know me. You done with entropy? Yeah, you know me. You done with entropy? Yeah, you know me. You done with entropy? Hello and welcome to another Stephen Hawking's approved episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. Well, maybe it's not Stephen Hawking's approved, but... He hasn't disapproved, so I'm going to take his taciturn silence for approval. As always, this is an internet radio show dedicated to bringing you coverage of the Green Lantern comics from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, my favorite Green Lanterns, and hopefully some of yours as well. I appreciate everyone downloading the show, and I appreciate everyone everyone sticking with me. We're going through a great time in the Green Lantern comics, uh, especially with Hal Jordan going to find out what the heck's going on with the new Guardians and all that. It's actually an interesting story, despite having to deal with the new Guardians. And we're also getting into more of Guy Gardner's solo series, where he's being given a chance to do what Guy Gardner does best. Beat some alien ass. It's going to be a fun time for me covering these books, and hopefully it's going to be just as fun as you got for you guys to follow along. Hopefully you guys can get these books. Unfortunately, they still haven't been reprinted, so go check out your local comic book shops for back issues. Don't worry, I'll wait around for you. And while I'm waiting, I'll go ahead and play a couple of promos for some other podcasts that you should be listening to. And then when we get back, we'll go ahead and get started with our coverage of the Green Lantern issue number 34, which has much fewer new guardians in it. Hooray. What did you say your name was? 
Captain Jean-Luc Picard of the USS Enterprise. Which one of you is the captain? We violate the treaty, Captain. Red alert! All hands, battle station! What are you scratching at? Incorrect. Mondays, available the second Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. Hello, boys and girls. It's your dear old Uncle Joker. We've got an internet access here in Arkham, so I'm doing a little browsing. Hmm, lolcats, lolcats, porn... Low cats. What's this? Bailey's Batman Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast devoted to everything Dark Knight Detective. Well, Michael Bailey, where's Bailey's Joker Podcast, eh? We'll see about that. Harley, get our things. We're going to Georgia. <laughs> Hey everyone, Michael Bailey here asking you to check out my bi-weekly internet radio show, Bailey's Batman Podcast, or at least I'm asking you to check it out while you still can, until the Joker shows up on my doorstep. Bailey's Batman Podcast is a hodgepodge-type show where I discuss all aspects of the Dark Knight's history. Comics, movies, animation, even trading cards and action figures. Everything Batman-related is fair game, and yes, that does include the villains, which includes the Joker so he won't kill me. New episodes drop every other Tuesday over at www.baileysbatmanpodcast.com. The site also has links to the iTunes page, the RSS feed, my Twitter handle if you're into the social media thing, and the Bailey's Batman Podcast Facebook page. Bailey's Batman Podcast is a proud member of the Batman Podcast Connection, which you can find at batmanpodcastconnection.wordpress.com. I really hope that's the UPS guy. Why can't I have Batman in my basement? And we're back. And as usual, it's time now to go check the Just One of the Guys mailbag to see if we've got a couple of letters there. So, let's go check it out. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and first up, I've got a, a new iTunes review. This one, uh... Probably not as positive as usual, but I'm willing to read it anyway. 
This one comes from Happa Bear. It was on September 13th of 2012. And it starts out, I think this review will be an endorsement for a certain demographic. Strike one for me in the first episode was the host throwing in his unbalanced political leanings. I can live with someone not having the same politics as me, so I decided to keep listening. Strike two came when he made the angry black man comment regarding Jon Stewart. Since I don't play baseball, that is where I decided to cancel my subscription for this podcast. If you're white and lean in a certain direction far away from the center, then perhaps this podcast is for you. I'm not white, but I guess I should thank the host for making it clear this podcast is not for me. He does seem to genuinely he does seem to genuinely love the subject material, so that's a point in his favor. Well, I I, I guess I'm not really seeing where I did this. Maybe I came across a bit politically biased. I do openly admit that I'm kind of conservative, but I usually try and keep politics out of the podcast. So, Happy Bear, I apologize for turning you off of the podcast. Um, hopefully there are some other Green Lantern podcasts out there if you're interested in the subject that uh, you can listen to. I know the uh, Green Lantern's Light is a good one. I've heard the uh, Lantern Cast is a good one, and uh, the Green Lantern Corps podcast is another one. So if you're looking for a Green Lantern podcast, there are definitely stuff out there. But thank you, Happy Bear. Regardless of your opinion of the show, I thank you for writing in and uh, doing a comment for me. Appreciate it. I'm honestly sorry that, you know, the show wasn't to your liking. I do apologize for that. Our next post comes from the podcast site, justoneoftheguys.libson.com. Professor Allen posted there saying, Thanks for the book guys mentioned, Sean. I'll return the favor the next time we return. Well, that's awesome. I can't wait to hear about that. And thankfully, we've got another letter from Professor Allen reading, Sean, we returned the favor in our recording today and said lots of nice things about you and your show. And we even played your Mammoth 3 Minute Plus promo. The show should drop in the next day or so. When we eventually get a promo for our show, I'll send it along to you. Professor Allen, thank you very much for covering, well, this piddly little podcast and your show and actually saying nice things about it. Um, like I say, cross-promotion of podcast is really what gets the word out. And I'm going to say this again. If you guys aren't listening to the Book Guy podcast, you need to start doing it. Uh, right now, they've talked about covering Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card. Uh, they covered the first book. They're supposed to be covering them in semi, well, not chronological order, but chronological to the book order, um, not chronological release order. And the guys on there all have a great rapport. It's a fun show. They recently did uh, um, an episode where they recorded John Barrowman live at uh, the Toronto, essentially a Toronto comics convention or a Toronto sci-fi convention. I didn't, I'm horrible with this. I can't remember what it was. But they've got pretty much John Barrowman being John Barrowman, which if you know who John Barrowman is, you know it's a pretty fun time. But uh, thank you, Professor Allen. Uh, Professor Allen is one of the four people who is one of the pro- who are the primary host of the Book Guys podcast. You can check that out on iTunes. Just search for Book, Buys, Book Guys podcast. Uh, this time, I need to remember the uh, people who are part of the podcast are Paul Alves, the Padre, Sir Jimmy, and of course the indomitable Professor Allen, lover of Doctor Doom. So thank you all, guys, for promoting the show and. Uh, I know that you're going to have a listener in me. But that little bit is all we have for the mailbag, so let's go ahead and get into our review of Green Lantern number 34. 
Green Lantern number 34 was cover dated December 1992, and it was released on or about October 27th of 1992. Cover price again was $1.25 US, $1.50 Canada, and 60 p UK. The title this time around was The Third Law, Part 2, Entropy. Writer was Gerard Jones, penciler M.D. Bright, inker Romeo Tangal, letterer Albert de Guzman, colorist Anthony Tolan, assistant editor Eddie Berganza, and editor Kevin Dooley. Hal Jordan is royally pissed. Having flown to Oa, Hal is confronting the assembled Guardians, telling them about what went on with the new Guardians, the Chosen, and the black entities called the Entropoids. The Guardians aren't quick to give up information, instead asking Hal what happened after the initial attack. Hal recounts how the Black Orb engulfed Kreoth's island, how he followed it spaceward until it hit him with a cold, dark energy, and how then it disappeared without a trace. The Guardians press Hal as to why he didn't come to Oa immediately, and Hal tells that he took the Kalmakus and Aresia to stay with Carol Ferris before searching for some answers. The Guardians balk that Hal is asking for answers, saying that he should not question the judgment of the beings that live for billions of years and protect countless lives. Hal counters, saying that they can learn from humans, that Api Ali Apsa tried to learn from humans. The Guardians say that his fall into badness was all a part of their grand plan, and their discussion of it with Hal is also part of it. They also relate their plan to the story of Jesus, who knew he would be betrayed by Judas, yet recruited in him anyway. The Guardians ask if his recruitment was a prophecy or an assignment. Saying that the wise reveal what must be revealed, the Guardians leave Hal alone with his thoughts. Trying desperately to comprehend why the Guardians are being so secretive, Hal is met by the rest of the Green Lantern Corps. Trying to make sense of it all, the group, hear, the group hears Amanita, the Mushroom Lanterns, statement of something dark coming from the sky. As they all look up, they see the massive form of the villain, Entropy. The massive being calls forth a cadre of warriors to fight the Guardians, while the Guardians tell the Lanterns to go take them down. But one lantern isn't willing to fight without knowing exactly what's going on, and that lantern is Hal Jordan. Cut away to Carol's house, where our female protagonist is looking in on the sleeping bodies of the Kalmaku family. Carol hears Tom murmuring something strange. But thinking that it's only a nightmare, Carol hopes that Tom and his family will be able to work through the real-life nightmare via their dreams. But unbeknownst to Carol... Tom is actually trying to contact Betty Clawman. <sighs> Another new guardian who's trying to communicate through the dream time to send a message to Hal to tell him that the Chosen are trapped in darkness, but they can see a faint point of light. They just need someone to help them reach it. Back on Oa, the minions of Entropy monologue about the Guardian's self-appointed duty and how it goes counter to the laws of thermodynamics. Tired of the jibber-jabber, Boudicca and Creon decide it's time for some butt-whooping. The other lanterns look to Hal for leadership, but Hal isn't ready to blindly follow the Guardians. Seeing the duo getting pwned by the minions, Kilowog and Tomar too rush in to help, only to have Kilowog get smack-bound by one of the yellow... yellow buildings occupying the planet. Hal rushes in to save his former mentor, after, and after a last-second rescue, 
Al demands that the Guardians tell him why they are idly standing by. Seeing that their secrecy has gone on for too long, Ganthet tells the Lanterns that anyone who comes into contact with the power of entropy loses precious years from their life. And this is why the Lanterns must fight rather than the Guardians. And with this statement, the giant manifestation of entropy stands over the Guardians, saying that it will devour them all. Again, I reiterate, despite the fact that the New York Guardians and the Chosen and all that rigmarole is part of the story, this is really an interesting tale. We've got an unknown and the Guardians being secretive, which they've been before, but this seems to be a lot bigger, and it is dealing with a lot of the subject that's been brought up in Hal's mind with the reveal in Ganthet's tale that the Guardians had been secret secreted before about certain things, which has kind of led to, oh, like, the loss of a billion years of life in the universe. So you can understand here why Hal is kind of irked that the Guardians aren't fessing up with whatever they need to do to fight this being. It's a good storyline, and it's getting back to the idea that Hal is an individual thinker, and really, although he is a member of the Corps, he thinks outside of the box quite a bit, which essentially is one of the reasons why he's viewed as one of the greatest Green Lanterns. Well, by some people. I might be a bit biased. But let's go ahead and hit notes. We'll go ahead and start with a cover, which is a really good cover of Hal, uh, specifically very angry Hal, screaming to the Guardian who's got his back to us that, I want answers now, as... Members of the Lantern Corps, including Kilowog, Brick, and Creon, try and hold him back from punching the little imp in the face. It's another one of those eye-catching covers that draws you in, specifically with the word balloon there, mentioning that there are unanswered questions that the Guardian is holding from the Green Lantern Corps, and that Hal is completely furious over that only accentuates the idea that there is something important going down in this issue. So, good eye-catching cover there. However, there is a little, nit- a little nitpick that I have with the cover. Uh, Creon, who's one of the new recruits, who you may remember from the storyline with Flicker and Hal recruiting, or Hal getting back uh, Star Sapphire, Carol. Creon seems to have a either golden robotic arm, kind of a la Anakin Skywalker in Episode 2, a bit more advanced though, or he's wearing a golden glove. Oddly enough, it's on the hand that he has his ring on, so essentially his ring is in contact with something gold. Which, wouldn't that effectively make anything that his ring makes completely not work? I don't know if they really thought this out. It's nice character design, but kind of flawed in the execution. Page 1, we get a super close-up image of Hal Jordan screaming, Guardians, I need answers! And it kind of evokes the 
similar close-up that we got uh, of Hal Jordan in issue 8 of the Green Lantern series. However, Broderick's art style and uh, Bright's art style are a bit different. Broderick tends to use a bit more line use in his art style, so in some ways it may look a bit scratchy. Uh, Bright's style is very clean. Uh, They're both really good images of Hal, Again, I hearken to the fact that I like Bright's style a bit better than Broderick's. It is kind of weird, though. Hal's eyes, although they do have the uh, dark pupils in them, they don't have the little white centers in them. So that is a bit off-putting, but it's a good it's a good splash page, and you can tell Hal's pretty fed up with the Guardians misleading him, or at least not being open with him. Page 3, panel 2, as Hal's recounting what he did to the Guardians, he says that when he tried to follow the entropoid mass that had taken Kreoff's island into space, he heard a woman's voice calling from the darkness. This may, well, I'm certain it relates back to Tom Kalamaku in the previous issue, who was telling Betty Clawman through the dream world, or whatever, to try and contact Hal. I don't know, it's... More New Guardians mumbo-jumbo. I don't get them. Page 4. Again, as Hal is trying to describe what he did to the Guardians, some of the things that he's complaining about seem to fall a little flat. Seem to be a bit petty as well. I mean, one of the complaints is that Tom and his family had no place to stay since he had to rent his house out, since the Guardians asked him to come watch The Chosen, so Tom doesn't have a place to stay weird. Also, he's complaining that Carol was inconvenienced because he had to drop Tom and his family off with him, so that's odd too, and he was also upset that he had to drop off his hot ex-girlfriend with Carol, who's now possibly his current love interest. As I've as I've said, this part of Hal's argument just seems kind of petty, and just kind of that he's blaming the, arg- blaming the Guardians for him having to do this. Pages 5-7, through seven, the Guardians give their counterpoint to Hal's desire to have information. They are nigh-immortal. Yes, they can be killed, but they've decided to leave their life on Maltus to take on this role as protectors of the universe. And with that level of immortality, they've got a uh, better idea or a better grasp of actually the big picture of things going on in the cosmos. However, it does tend to blind them to the mundane things that are going on that the Lanterns are actually having to deal with on a daily basis. I guess kind of a good relationship would be something that is going on in the current Doctor Who series, where the Doctor, being the last of his race, the Time Lords, is that when he travels by himself, he gets this feeling of grandeur and this feeling of somewhat omnipotence that the Guardians do, and that sways his opinions. It was touched on in a recent episode that since he wasn't traveling with his companions, who are usually mortal, and this time specifically Amy Pond and Rory Williams, he can lose his, well, not objectivity, but in some ways stop seeing things in black and white. In Doctor Who, it's the companions that in some way ground the Doctor. And here in this book, it's the Green Lanterns who are attempting to ground 
the Guardians, in the sense of grounding them to bring them to reality, the reality that most people are facing on a daily basis. Page 9, here's where the book gets a little cerebral. The Guardians call upon the idea of Jesus, or who they call the Christ on our world, to sort of relate what they're doing with the Green Lanterns. Let me just go ahead and read the excerpt for you. One of the Guardians says, You have a religious figure on your world, called the Christ. In your stories, he knew from the beginning which one of his followers would betray him. Yet he recruited his betrayer, and announced to his followers that one would betray him. Is it I? asked Judas. You have said, replied your Christ, and, in, and Judas betrayed, and Christ's work was done, and Judas killed himself. Now we ask you, was that a prophecy or an assignment? It's an interesting argument. Obviously, those who believe, myself included, believe that Jesus was God made flesh on earth. So, he essentially was omnipotent and knew what was going to happen to himself. Therefore, he also knew that Judas would betray him. So, by choosing Judas to be a member of his circle, he effectively brought forth his own demise and essentially fulfilled his being, his reason for being on the planet. I get what the Guardians are trying to get at here, is that they are omnipotent and their choices probably won't be known, much less understood by the people that they recruited. So, I guess in some way the comparison is apt. However, it is interesting that a storyline like this, specifically a storyline dealing with comic book characters, would feel the need to relate itself to religion. It is kind of interesting, and it is kind of uncalled for. Uh, and to be honest, I don't mind it. It's kind of nice when comic books can take a sort of touchy subject like religion and relate it into the comic in an intelligent manner. Page 10, panel 5. When I say that the Guardians brought in all the Green Lanterns to try and defend the planet from this mysterious entity that's going to try and attack Oa... I guess they decided to leave uh, Nort, Aa, and Chaselon and Larbox out. So, technically not all the Green Lantern Corps. Maybe they could have used them and it would have helped out a bit. Pages 12 and 13, we get the reveal of the villain, Entropy. Now, it's kind of hard to describe. He's a sort of hooded mask character with a sort of I want to say Charles Xavier Cerebro helmet covering his head, but in the place where his face would be, it's just blackness except for these two blue glowing eyes. Uh, you don't see the rest of his body because it's huge and obscure, obscured by the skyline, but it looks like he's got a giant purple flowing cape behind him as well, sort of Thor-like as well. Uh, you meet a giant guy staring down the side of a planet and yeah, it's probably going to creep you out as well. Page 15, panel 4. Hal is really not taking anything from the Guardians. I mean, they're telling him to go face this obvious threat to the planet, and Hal's still saying no. I hope there's never a time ever again where Hal decides to go against the Guardians. Thankfully, I don't think there ever will be. Page 16, panel 2. We get a little throwaway line... Sorry, a little throwaway line here from Carol that says, 
you know, I know I've been learning a lot from dreams lately. I really don't know if that plays out anywhere in the book, but it's a nice little seeding of something that may be coming along, so we'll keep our eyes open for that. Then, of course, on same page, panel four, we get the dreamlike image of Betty Clawman. Ah, another fine hero of the awesome super team known as the New Guardians. Thankfully, it's not the one who contracted AIDS from the super vampire named the Hemoglobin. There's a great character. Page 17, panel 3. Kilowog says that the lanterns have to hang together. I guess, you know, that's a good enough rallying cry. At least he didn't say that they needed to hang tough. Essentially, I guess the recruits could be considered the new kids on the block. <laughs> I hate myself. Everybody's always talking about Page 20, panel 3. Oh, wow. How they finally realize that Kilowog is bashed in the sky into a building which is colored yellow. That coloring the buildings on the entire planet yellow may have been a bad idea. Maybe his ring won't be able to cushion his fall against this yellow building that he's being knocked into. Oopsie. Then finally, page 21, panel 4. Okay, here's the secret that the Guardians revealed to them. Okay, Lanterns, get this. I know this is a big bad enemy, and you can fight him off, and we shouldn't. We want you to fight him. Uh, The idea is, if entropy touches you, you lose some of your life. Now, we know that you only live to be about, oh, 70 or so, maybe more or less, depending upon, you know, where you come from, and we're nigh immortal, so would you please go in and fight this guy for us, okay? Thanks a bunch. <sighs> yeah, the Guardians are just basically offering up the chorus cannon fodder. It's sad. But that ends the notes for this issue. Let's go and take a look at some of the ads and see what they have to sell us this time around. On the front inside cover, they got us a ad that's got a brown-colored title blurb saying, Give yourself skid marks. Classy, especially when it's for the game Top Gear. Again, the game not dealing with Jeremy Clarkson. Come on, Nintendo. Get that game out there. A few more pages in, we get the Game Boy version of Ultima, Runes of Virtue, the sort of... Zelda-type game played on the Game Boy. I think we covered this before. Ultima was a fun PC game. I don't know how it'd do on the Game Boy. Next page, we get the Ugly Kid Joe, America's Least Wanted ad again. Again, I have to say, odd that they'd be advertising for bands and comic books, but there you have it. Then we get the American Comics and Entertainment Mega Sale ad, which has a really good image of Superman fighting Doomsday on it, and I guess they're ramping up for this weird thing where Superman fights Doomsday. Have any of you heard about that? I guess it's a big thing. It looks like Superman's fighting this big sort of rocky alien thing. wonder if anything comes of that. No idea. Then on the page after that, we get a close-up of the Tim Drake Robbins shirt with the Robin symbol on it, and it's an ad for Robin 3, coming November 6, 1992, And do you know how I know this came out in the 1990s? Well, 
aside from the fact that it says it came out November 6, 1992. No, it's the fact that the promotional thing that they have for this comic is that it has moving covers. Yeah, it was those kind of lenticular covers where the cover was sort of slotted out, and if you looked at it one way, it looked... Uh, it had a certain image, and if you looked at it another way, it had another image. It was another one of those hype things like the hologram covers that would get people to try and buy like six or seven copies of it in hopes that eventually they could sell it on the open market for double, triple, or quadruple the value, which I don't think really happened. Ever. Hodgepodge page really doesn't have anything new except for maybe an advertisement for Dave's comics. Of course, Dave's not here, man. Then on the next page, I still don't get it. They've got this advertisement for Doomsday is coming for Superman. What is this Doomsday character all about? I have no idea. If only someone would do a podcast about it. If only. Send all your hate mail to just one of the guys podcast at gmail.com for me, obviously knowing that Mike and Jeff do a From Crisis to Crisis podcast. Then we get another house ad for the Legion of Superheroes number 38, Nothing Lasts Forever. It says the end begins in that issue, and it's by Teeth Giffen, uh, T&M Beerbomb, Jason Pearson, Carl Story, and Tom McCraw. I'm not really certain. I didn't follow the Legion at this time, but I'm wondering if this is the story that leads to the Earth getting destroyed in the uh, 30th century. If I recall, it had something to do with there being an explosion on the moon, and that effectively had caused problems on the planet Earth and eventually led to the destruction of Earth. I mean, they were able to get the majority of the people and the majority of the Legion off Earth, but I think this is where the Earth blew up. Maybe I'm wrong. If anyone has any knowledge of that, please write in and correct me. I'd love to get, I'd love to get the scoop on this. Next page, we get the DC subscription ad with Wonder Woman, Flash, Green Arrow, Green Lantern, Batman, and Robin all running towards the uh, viewer, all actiony and everything. But strangely, there's a character missing. There, Superman's missing. Why would Superman miss, be missing from this pose? I mean, he's an iconic character in the DC pantheon. Were they thinking something bad was going to happen to Superman? I don't get it. Then on the back inside cover, we've got all the right moves. It's WWF Super WrestleMania, now for the Sega Genesis. And you've got characters like Hulk Hogan, The Ultimate Warrior, Randy Savage, IRS? Okay. The British Bulldog, Shawn Michaels, Ted DiBiase, and Papa Shango. Okay, Luke, write in and tell me who these guys are. I've got no clue. Finally, the back outside cover oh, gives us another odd advertisement for the Square Enix game Final Fantasy Mystic Quest. It gives the image of a X-ray with someone who has no brain in their skull, and the cover blurb says, Brain Transplant, thirty nine ninety nine. So, if it's not cows, it's people without brains who are promoting the Final Fantasy game at this time. Neat. Well, that does it for that comic. I'm going to take a little break here. 
play a couple of promos for a few awesome podcasts, and when I come back, we'll be ready to head on with Guy Gardner number three. Stay tuned. On May 30th, 2011, DC Comics announced the historic renumbering of all their superhero titles, and the internet broke in half. not true. That's impossible. Critics and naysayers abounded. Confusion reigned across fandom. What'll I do? What'll I do? What an unusual view. Not to mention the first reactions to the Supergirl costume. I hated her so much. It, it, the, it, flame, flames, flames on the side of my face, breathing, breathless. Heaving breaths. Heaving. But then the books actually hit. And opinions... He likes it! He likes it! Opinions began to change. The New 52 Adventures of Superman is a monthly podcast where John Wilson, J. David Weider, and Michael Kaiser take a look at each of the adventures of Superman and his family of characters in Action Comics. You know the deal, Metropolis. Treat people right. Or expect a visit from me. The Superman who appeared six months ago could hurdle skyscrapers and toss trucks around. Now it's faster, now it's stronger. How soon before it can't be stopped? Superboy. If resolving a situation for him is going to get me out from under these people once and for all, that's a small price to pay for freedom. Release the Superboy. Supergirl. Okay. Giant metal creatures. Falling from the sky, speaking in clicks and beeps. Father would love this dream. And Superman. You could do so much good. We could do so much good. I am doing good, Lois. Clark's such a loner. Never really lets anyone get close to him. The new 52 Adventures of Superman. Available the first of every month on iTunes and at new52superman.libson.com. said Mongo, Dindy. That's wrong character, wrong universe, and wrong galaxy. Hold on just one sec. Ah, here we go. Flash Legacies, a podcast connecting the adventures of Wally West, the third hero to be known as The Flash. Join me, Dave Walker, in my bi-weekly journey as I look at Wally's career from when he first donned the mantle of the Flash all the way up to the return of Barry Allen. Find me at flashlegacies.limpson.com And we are back. So let's go ahead and head into our next issue, Guy Gardner number three. Guy Gardner number three was cover dated 
December 1992. Its release date was on or about November 3rd of 1992. The cover price was $1.25 US, $1.50 Canada, and 60 p UK. The title was In Space, No One Can Hear You Fight. Writer was Gerard Jones, penciler was Joe Staten, inker was Terry Beatty, letterer was Albert de Guzman, colorist Anthony Tolan, assistant editor Eddie Baganza, and sheer generosity, Kevin Dooley. Guy challenges a hulking alien foe to a knockdown dragout fight and wins. Yep, that's it. That's essentially the issue. It is a big sequence of Guy fighting this one alien. It's a sequel, well, it's a follow up to the previous issue where he was kidnapped by the Palindra. Palin. Computer, what was that again? Palindrodnilip. Thank you, computer. Whatever, you said, pathetic man. Ouch. Well, <clears throat> anyhow, the aliens kidnapped him and made him take this test to prove that he was worthy to be their protector, and in this book, the test is going on, and he's basically beating up a bunch of aliens. The issue is completely wordless, except for the end of the issue, where you see that Guy has a line of these big, bruising hulking aliens that he's going to fight, and the only word that Guy says is next, and uh, it was kind of amusing, the uh, titles don't come till the end either, and you know, the writer credit also gets the easiest money any writer ever got away with for Gerard Jones, and inker Terry Beatty also got and panel borders, so he got to do panel borders as well, and letterer Albert de Guzman got off really easy, he only had to write 227 letters. And he probably got paid pretty well for it. And since it would be kind of pointless for me to, you know, describe the issue, it's a visual medium and this is an audio podcast, I'm going to do something special. I'm going to put uh, in a conversation that I had with podcast luminary Andrew Leyland from the podcast Hey Kids Comics and the Fantastic Cast, where we talk about Green Lantern. Not original Eventually. Stuff, but... Mm-hmm. Last year they did original stuff, so I was like, oh, crap. If I'm going to have to do original stuff, I'm going to be so boned. But uh, now this came up to me, and it, it gave me an excuse to actually you know, talk with you one-on-one, which is awesome. Because, uh, because honestly, Andy, you know, everyone that I talk to uh, in podcasting is always like, oh, that Andrew, that show is so great. You know, it, it, really, they all just rave about, you know, how fun your show is and how much of a connection you have with your kid and how that translates to the show. So I, I can't say enough about it. Oh, stop. Oh, no, carry on. <laughs> well, <laughs> see, that was, that was the thing I got from Scott when we went to Star Wars Celebration. Oh, yeah, yeah keep kissing my ass. Go ahead. That's fine. I, I'd love to hear this. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm slightly embarrassed by the whole thing. <laughs> well, you know, it, the, uh, I, I can understand because, you know, when I started this, I was like, you know, I'm only going to be doing this to, like, myself and maybe two other people will listen. And, no, that's that's not any further from the truth. But uh, <laughs> I, the fact that I'm actually that I'm actually actually doing this, I'm connecting with people who have the same likes that I do is just really amazing because it used to be I couldn't talk about star wars with my friends or my wife she'd just look at me and like oh is that the one with the cute guy and the guy who's going to be playing uh, uh oh it's the guy from uh 
It's the guy from Shaun of the Dead. I love him. I love that. And I was like, ugh. So, <laughs> so yeah, that, that's been the best thing about it. The emails from people mm-hmm. has been the, the the best. And getting to spend time with Michael, who I actually really see. Mm-hmm. Now he's uh, 17 and off wandering around doing his own thing. Well, is he is he still living? Uh, he hasn't moved out yet, has he? Or? No, no, he's just he's just finished high school and gone to sixth form. Oh. So he's got another two years at sixth form now. Is that see? I'm a see the education system in Great Britain. I kind of know how it works, but is sixth form more like a uh, is it like a post? Is it like a graduate school or? Yeah, they kind of they, they finish school at 16 here at the moment. I think they're after changing that to 18, and then it used to be you went out and got a job, but there aren't any jobs. So sixth form was always for the people who wanted to carry on in education for another two years, and then you can either go on to college or go to university. Okay. So Michael stayed on sixth form at the school that he was at. So essentially he's not really left high school, but they don't have to wear uniform anymore. And he has a, a considerably reduced timetable. Well, that's good. You know, does he, you know, uh, I know he says he's got a lot of stuff going on in DeviantArt. Does he has? Does he have any idea, you know, what he wants to work at or, you know? He'd like to go to the Joe Cubert school. <laughs> I've said his dad will have to be a lot more wealthy if he wants to afford that. No, I can imagine. Well, I haven't I haven't checked out his DeviantArt side. I need to go check that out because I've heard, you know, he's a decent artist, so I'll have to go check that out. Yeah, he's he's actually quite good. And he's 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 a good writer as well. Hmm. His his little stories are quite good. Well and uh, you know, credit to his father that, you know, he wants to get uh, into the whole comics medium, so that's that's totally awesome. Yeah, it's great. I've got to ask this because I asked this of Dave, you know, and the the fact that we were recording uh, on the uh, premiere date of uh, New Doctor Who, I have to ask this: What have you thought about the season so far? The the first one was excellent. Hmm? The second one was good. The third one was also good, but there was something lacking about the most recent two. Two and three. I don't know what it was. I, 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 I thought the premiere was brilliant. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. And it ha- and and to Moffat's credit, he is one of those people who can obfuscate enough, or at least keep the uh, the twist, you know, hidden or out of the public. So when you do find out what's going on, it's such a punch in the gut that you're just flabbergasted that why didn't I see this? And yeah. Why didn't I spot that coming? Yeah, and it and, and it was you know to find out that you know that that Oswin all this time was a Dalek, and that just really floored me. And I I I thought again, it's credit to Moffat as a writer. I mean, he as much as people rant and rave about how uh, oh what's his name uh, saved uh, Davies saved uh, Doctor Who, Moffat actually has been the better writer on the show, even prior to him taking over as showrunner, in my opinion. I mean, I know he did Blink, which is, a you know, very impressive, which really doesn't even deal that much with the Doctor. The Doctor no. second character in it. And, uh, yeah, I, I haven't seen the one with the cyborg yet, but I saw the, uh, the dinosaurs on the spaceship, and it was good. It had some good character moments, but I think it, I think it lacks, you know, something when Moffat's not writing. He just brings something special to the show. So, 
Well, I've been a fan of Moffat's writing since Press Gang in 1988. So you're preaching to the choir there. I I used to rush home from college to watch Press Gang, which was, it's this kids TV show about these six farmers running a newspaper. And on the first of it, you think, God, this is going to be awful. And I caught one episode once and it's, it's fantastically written. There's a wonderful attention to continuity throughout the five years that the show ran. They'll bring back actors who were in an episode in the first season in the fourth season, by, and it's played by the same actor. And it's it's a brilliant show. I don't did that never get shown anywhere in the US. I I, I didn't hear about it until you mentioned it in like an email or uh, something to me, and I I finally broke down and started. Uh, uh, I, I started torrenting stuff. Now I haven't done any movies. One of the big things I did is I found a, a big section of Green Lantern uh, CBRs, which is going to help with the show because after like issue 125, I don't have any comics, and I'd love to go out and buy them. But if I just have them on the CBR, I'll get them. But I've thought about torrenting those shows because yeah, they haven't uh, the American. I guess the American broadcasting system, or not ABC itself, but the broadcasting over here, they pick and choose what they want to bring over of UK television. Uh, when I was a kid growing up, they had Monty Python and Doctor Who on uh, this thing called public broadcasting system, which was essentially a, kind of a government-funded television station. It wasn't funded by advertisement dollars, so there were no ads but there were contributions from the government and from corporations that allowed these shows to be on. So this is where I got to see uh, Monty Python and Faulty Towers and Doctor Who for the first time. But nowadays, if it's not broadcast on BBC America, British shows really don't make it over here. And most of the time, they just do the big shows, like they do the Sherlock's and they do the Doctor Who's. And now they're doing Copper, which I'm not certain if that's an original show for BBC America or whether that aired over in uh, the UK and then they just – No, we've not had that yet. Okay. They also did uh, – they did the British version of Life on Mars, which they came over here and just kind of – Ruined. Yeah. Well, I don't want to say – well – they changed it I saw one episode of it and thought, what the hell is this? I, this isn't life on Mars. I did not get to see – I heard that the uh, second season of that where they did um, – where it moved into the 80s. I never – Yeah, Ashes to Ashes. Ashes to Ashes, yeah, it was a different show. They, they aired that over here on BBC America as well, and I never got a chance to see that. But, yeah, Moffat, uh, I want to go – I want to go check out. That's one of the things I'm thinking about checking out because they don't have it. You can't find it on Netflix. So I would have to, you know, I don't know if it's on YouTube, but uh, I would love to see that because everything Moffat has written, not only Doctor Who stuff, but the Sherlock stuff as well, has just been brilliant. Pretty much everything he does. He followed Press Gang up with his first adult sitcom, which was called Joking Apart, which was about this guy who was a stand-up comedian who was going through a very bitter divorce. And the first season of that is wonderfully written. It, it's real. He's on stage doing his stand-up act, and it just keeps intercutting between what he's doing his stand-up act about, which he's basing it on his real life. But he'll do stuff like he will tell you the punchline at the beginning of the episode and then work backwards as to how he got to the punchline. And it, the way that he scripts it is beautiful. He did this in Coupling as well. He did an episode of Coupling, 
because uh, you got the American coupling, didn't you? You didn't get the British one. Uh, they, I'm pretty certain the BBC America did the British one, but yeah, we had it, and it was it was just a poor Friends knockoff without the pretty actors like Jennifer Aniston and mm. LeBlanc and all that. We did an episode of Coupling that was totally, it was kind of Rashomon in that it took place entirely in a bar, but there was three different story strands that would interconnect. So you'd see characters having a dialogue and then five, ten minutes later, you'd see the same conversation. But now you're approaching it from the other people in the same scene. And he did that with the, the three couples that are in the series. He did that with the, the three of them. So there was, there's two characters in each scene. And each time you see the scene, you're seeing it from a different perspective. And it was just so wonderfully constructed as a piece of writing. He's a fantastic writer. Uh, if you can find Joking Apart, I heartedly endorse the first series. The second series kind of ran out of steam a bit. Mm-hmm. And it is one of those things that you think maybe that should have been one of those shows that should have only ran for one year which we kind of do a lot over here. Yeah. If it's successful, we knock it on the head if they don't want to do any more. And joking apart, it's like that. The second series isn't bad, but it's not as good as the first. The only thing he's done that's dismissible is a sitcom he did called Chalk, which was about um, a high school teacher. And given that he was a high school English teacher, I'd have thought that one would have been the most biting satirical thing he did. And essentially, he just turned it into a farce. Hmm. And it, it didn't really work as well as the other stuff. I think it's, my my theory of this being his least successful show is borne out by the fact that that has never been released on DVD over here and has never been repeated. Really? Whereas well, all his other stuff has been released on DVD or repeated somewhere. Well, yeah, the the press scanning is definitely something, since you mentioned, I've been wanting to look into. And I'm glad you're reminding me of it because now that I'm, I'm more willing to tour and stuff, I may try and get that because uh, I, I there's been nothing that he's done. That I haven't been at least entertained by, and if not wholly and outrightly impressed by. You know, did uh, you see Jekyll? I did not see Jekyll. That was uh, oh, who was in that? Uh, he was oh, uh, James Nesbitt. Yes, but uh, yeah, I remember that. I completely forgot that he did that as well. I the the fact that he's interpreting. Uh, see, the sad thing is. Again, American audiences or American, you know, studios over here have decided to do the same thing. That they're adapting, essentially, uh, Moffat's Sherlock over here for the show called Elementary, which stars I don't know who it stars, but it, it's Johnny uh, Lee Miller and uh, what's her name from Charlie's Angels? Female Watson. Yeah. Um, the the Asian girl, I can't remember her name. Lucy, Lucy Liu, Liu isn't it? yes, Lucy Liu. And I'm like, you know, I know they're trying to modernize it, but Moffin did it. Why don't you just do what ABC did a while back? They took uh, when when the writer strike happened over here, they couldn't air new episodes of certain shows. So what they did was they the major networks here took shows from their ancillary networks, like ABC had connections to the USA network. So they took uh, shows like Monk with, uh, oh, what's his name? Tony Shalhoub. Tony Shalhoub from uh, uh, you know, Men in Black, 
and played it in their earnings, and it got great ratings because no one had seen that. And I would think if CBS, who's doing this elementary show, was smart, they would just get with the BBC and get with Moffat and air episodes of Sherlock. And they could even if they wanted to, because I know the the shows run about what an hour and a half to two hours. They they run yeah, they're, a, they're on for ninety minutes. You know, they could break it up into two shows and make the season run, you know, almost a full thirteen episodes, even though there's what, like only three or four Yeah. In You've done six season. episodes so far, so if you split... There was only three in the first year and three in the second. So if you're splitting them in half, you've got 12 episodes. Yeah, and that would be, you know... I, I think it would be you know, just a smart way to go. It would decrease their production cost, and it would get out to the masses a really intelligent and well-written and well-acted show. But unfortunately, CBS decides, like most American producers to to take something British and just bastardize it and turn it into a cheap American knockoff, which is which is sad. It's, we don't do enough episodes is what it is. Your your system's built all around syndication, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Well and see that that works to the fact that we're going to have more stuff to watch, but it also in in ways diminishes quality. I mean when you have you know a hundred episodes of a comedy like Friends, you're going to get ones in there that are just abysmally bad. But when you're, and I pull this up as being one of the funniest shows around, when you have only 13 episodes of Faulty Towers, you're not going to have a clunker in there. All of those shows are incredibly amusing. So when you have that, when you actually have only certain amount of shows to actually air, it makes you have to write better. It makes you have to put the best acting and the best scripts forward rather than just throwing something out there because you have to fill up a certain quota in order to get syndication rights. Yeah, you've got to do 22 a year. And it's not the argument that there's not enough for syndication. Faulty Towers ran in perpetuity over here. Mm -hmm. It's still on. You you can flick through the channels and Faulty Towers is still on. And they made, what, 12 of them? Yeah, twelve or thirteen, I think, and, and and it's still it's still considered to be one of the funniest comedies ever made, and I would not disagree with that. I, I put the same thing even with Python prior to it. I mean, yes, they had episodes like in the third series where uh, John Cleese had left and things had kind of broken apart, but still there was hilarity all throughout that show. So it, it, it's disappointing. But yeah, the, mm. I, I've been a huge Doctor Who fan since since I was young. It, the, I lived in a little town where we didn't get UHF stations before the advent of cable and everything, where we had to watch everything on the antennas on the back of the TVs. And it was the, the UHF stations in like major cities that would play reruns of Star Trek and stuff like this. So I had to go to... Oklahoma City, where I live now, and go to my uh, like uncle's house to watch Star Trek, and I was just uh, <laughs> any time I could, you know, go spend the night up there, I would try and make it up there. But they did have on the PBS channel that was where I watched Doctor Who, and every Saturday night they'd have an episode of Doctor Who, or actually, I guess two episodes because the, most of them, the series would be broken down in like four or six parts, right? And they'd play two parts, which would run about. 40, 45 minutes, 
and then they'd play an episode of Monty Python's Flying Circus after that. So that was growing up. That was that was my Saturday night. That was my nerd. Uh, <laughs> that was my nerd getaway. Go and watch Doctor Who, the Tom Baker stuff, and then go watch uh, Monty Python's Flying Circus. And uh, that's another thing I need to do. I I have never been exposed aside from like the three Doctors and the five Doctors to any of the Hartnell or the Trotton or the uh, McNee, not McNee. Who is it? Pertwee. Pertwee. Why do I think McNee? I, I I've never seen any of that stuff. I saw like the all of the all of the uh, Tom Baker and all of the uh, Peter Davidson stuff, and I think I saw the first episode of the Colin Baker stuff. And then they, you know, for some reason, PB, PBS here just decided not to air it anymore. So I never got any Sylvester McCoy stuff. I never got. I got all but one of the uh, Colin Baker stuff, and I've heard the Sylvester McCoy stuff was really good. In fact, uh, his later ones are really good. You you can pretty much skip his first series and not miss anything. Okay, because I was talking to to Dave about this, and this this kind of shocked me because everyone was so uh, flabbergasted in the uh, first series of the new Doctor Who with Eccleston, and the second show, uh, the Dalek one where the Doctor's running away from the Dalek and he runs up the stairs, and everyone's like, oh, he's fine, and the Dalek starts hovering up the, up the stairs, and everyone's like, oh, mm. shit. And Dave... Yeah, that, was, that was first in the remembrance of the Daleks. Yeah, and, uh, he said, you know, that was something that uh, was done in the McCoy when I was like, really, I have got to see this stuff, because it was always, you know, Doctor Who, at least in the Tom Baker stuff, it had that sense of fun, but it also had some really clever writing and it also had a sense that they were actually not pulling the science fiction out of their ass, that they were actually trying to, to in some way relate it to actual science. So that's what really enamored me of the show. And I I don't know about you, but Tom Baker and Peter Davidson kind of buy left and right for my favorite ones, probably simply because, you know, they were the ones I grew up with. Yeah, they're the two. I mean, Tom was the Doctor when I was growing up, and the Saturday night thing is pretty much the same. Doctor Who would be on. Basil Brush would be on. Doctor Who would be on. And then we had to wait through some interminable, tedious variety show before Starsky and Hutch was on. Oh, And that was Saturday night when I was a kid. And then Peter Davison took over, and it moved away from Saturday night. It moved on to, I think it was on Mondays or Tuesdays. I can't remember. Hmm. And they may have even shown two episodes a week at Peter Davison. And then Colin Baker took over and they moved it back to Saturday and it just got crushed against the A-team. Oh, yeah. And that's that's what prompted its 18-month hiatus. And then it came back with Trial of a Time Lord. Um, see, I, I'm not just – I just don't like Colin Baker's interpretation. Yeah, that's what I've heard from a lot of people. A lot of people deemed his interpretation of the Doctor as kind of um, mean-spirited. And the fact that I really have nothing to – related to other than like bits and pieces of memory of the first episode kind of limits me in you know making a determination on that yeah his, his best one i think was vengeance on Zaros. Mm-hmm. i think that's colin baker's best if you can track down a, that one, that's just come out on dvd over here so i don't know whether you get dvd releases when we do i'm, pr- I'm pretty certain we get them because I, I go to a site that does like uh you know dvd releases and they usually uh 
do a bunch of the sci-fi ones or a bunch of the nerd-centric ones. And Doctor Who, whenever they release episodes of Doctor Who, he's usually one to put those up. So. And then Sylvester McCoy, you can pretty much start with Remembrance of the Daleks and go from the beginning of his second season through his third. Because his first season is, by and large, terrible. Really? Oh, I thought it was awful as a kid. Oh, but I wasn't a kid by that, but I'll have been about 17, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, I've got to I've got to go pick those out. You know, when I get free time, I need to watch through those because it's such it's such an expansive series, and it's it's all well for the most part, it's very cleverly written and really well acted. And uh, again, it embodies that not only that sense of uh, you know science fiction fantasy, but it also the sense of fun, which I think was sortly missing from. You know, Amer- well, recent American sci-fi shows like Battlestar Galactica. I, I, I admired Battlestar Galactica, the new one, for its for special effects and its storytelling. But I just, after two seasons, I just couldn't watch it because so unrelentingly grim. Yes, after after watching, and I think what may have soured me on it was that a friend of mine lent me the. Uh, the box set, the season set. So I would sat and watched, you know, one season or two seasons all the way through. And by the end of it, I was wanting to go sit in a bathtub and slit my <laughs> Oh, yeah, it's an unremented. I see, I think the, the new Galactica is one of the best sci-fi series ever done. But I like its unremitting grimness because, to me, that was very British, science fiction-wise. The Doctor Who, Doctor Who's the ex- exception. If you've ever seen Blake Seven, Despite the shoddy special effects by today's standards, Blake Seven's unremittingly grim. It starts with the main character being accused of being a paedophile. Well, that's not the, the, the highest thing. What happens is the people who are accusing him of doing this, the corrupt government that he's trying to dispose, they brainwash the children into thinking he has actually done this to them. Oh, wow. So it's not a case of getting them to lie on the stand. They genuinely think this has happened to them. And this was this was British science fiction. Day of the Triffids was on when I was a kid, and that was quite grim. Mm-hmm. And there was there was a fantastic kid series called The Stone Tape, and they did an adaptation of John Wyndham's Chocky. And these were for kids. Wow. And these were these were very very hard work stuff. And we had Sapphire and Steel. And so Doctor Who was kind of like the exception. British science fiction has always been grim. And unrelentingly bleak. With a very, we'd, we've never subscribed to Roddenberry's view that mankind is going to ultimately come through and be optimistic. Much as I love the original Star Trek, mm-hmm. and to me, it's the original, and then there's everything else. No, the original I... seventy nine is is what I think of as Star Trek. Um, if you check, I mean, I, I talked to Chris about this when we did the. Um, what did we talk about? Dead Set. Yes. And we talked because he'd seen a lot of British stuff, which quite surprised me. And he was on about the fact that a lot of our stuff is unremittingly bleak. So I think that's why I liked Battlestar as much as I did. Well, that that makes sense. And I've watched uh, – they had they had Dead Set on YouTube, and I'm not certain if they still have it. But I watched like the first uh, – the opening series or the opening episode of it. And yes, for a British show, when, you know, if you're not accustomed to it – it is pretty bleak. It is. Oh, yeah. It, it it actually does make The Walking Dead look a bit <laughs> joyful. Yeah, yeah, a bit joyful. It does because 
and, and well, I guess you know I could also harken back to the was it Danny Boyle the first uh, twenty eight days later yeah twenty eight days later uh, which which was uh, obviously sort of a progenitor sort of a, an idea that the dead set took from but yeah that that show definitely had a very dark feel to it you know it may have just been you know i i like battlestar galactica and i like the story but after a while i was just like uh, and maybe it's being raised on doctor who and star trek that i want my sci-fi to be not so grim and gritty, but uh, to have a sense of fun, to have a sense of adventure, to have a sense of wonder of what's out there. And mm. I understand the, the political motivations behind it. I understand the them wanting to do a, a darker version of it. But after a while, it just uh, it didn't settle with me. And I dropped off after the second season and only sporadically watched through like the uh, third through fifth, I guess. Or they, they did a fifth season. And I... I I just heard everyone bitching about the ending. About oh, oh see, now that's another. I completely disagreed about that. After four and a half years, I think it ran, didn't it? Five seasons, whatever, of unremitting bleakness. They actually gave you an optimistic ending, mm-hmm. and I was like, oh, that's actually quite nice. That after the after the characters have been through what they've been through. The, that ending I'm, I'm down with that and then I went on the internet and just saw people bitch about it mm-hmm. and I was like oh well so once again I'm, there's a boat that's left me on the island no I, I, well, I again talking you know talking about the island I'm certain that was the same sort of thing that people had with the uh, lost finale which a lot of people which I again this was a show that I didn't catch in the beginning, and I didn't watch throughout, you know, when it came out afterwards on DVD and everything. And I've heard that its ending sort of, in a way, mirrored the ending, or not mirrored, but, you know, paralleled the ending of uh, Battlestar Galactica. That was a hopeful, pleasing ending that also had a lot of religious connotations to it. So The the thing we lost was it became readily apparent they didn't know how the show was going to end. Mm-hmm. when they went into the last season because the last season is obviously planned and it's the only season you can say that about yeah well and, and that's where lost lost me forgive the pun no and and see that's why that's why also coming back to other sci-fi and i know you go through this with michael about babylon 5 babylon 5 was originally scripted by straczynski to be a five season thing but what the problem was at the end of the fourth season, the there was no real there was no real definitive notice that they were going to be renewed for a fifth season. So Straczynski basically decided, well, I've got to try and wrap things up, wrap things up. So he did a hurried wrap up in the fourth season with the idea that there wasn't going to be a fifth. Well, after all that was filmed and done, they said, oh, by the way, we're going to have a fifth season. And then he just sort of had to spin his wheels and you know, bring the show out, which is why yeah. the fifth season was just kind of meh. Yeah, it starts off badly with that revelation about Sheridan's wife, mm-hmm. which is just, uh, are we watching Dallas now? Yeah, yeah, it did, it, it did kind of turn into a, 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 a drama, and it just, it, it lost something, I don't know. And it didn't, the fifth season was hurt as well by the idea that he thought they were going to get a film, so he took out the telepath wars. Mm-hmm. And that left him spinning his wheels as well. And I think more than anything, the fifth season shows that, yes, he may have had contingency plans for everything, but he didn't have contingency plans for gutting his own story. Mm -hmm. 
because we've still to see the telepath wars because that film never happened. Yeah. Whereas to me, what he should have done was tell his telepath war story. And if they got a film, we'll just come up with another idea that works on its own. Well, and I think Straczynski was a good enough uh, writer or plotter that he could have come up with something that would have followed that up very well and been entertaining as well. Uh, mm. I, I like I said, I loved the the first four seasons of that show. Yeah, and I do. To the point that I've never been able to bring myself to watch season five again. Mm. I always stop at the end of season four and then I skip to the last episode. Yeah. Well, uh, the thing was, over here in the States, it was running pretty much concurrently in syndication with uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And I, it was it was a struggle for me to to pick my favorite because they were two shows essentially – well, and if you – believe the hype essentially Straczynski pitched this show to Paramount and they said no we don't want to do this and then they took it and did it as a Star Trek show so when the two shows were running parallel it it was hard for me to choose between which one that I really enjoyed more because Deep Space Nine had a really great I really enjoyed the ensemble cast of it I really enjoyed the character actors in that and the secondary characters especially like um uh, Garrick and Goldicott mm. and Cardassians and their stories and the uh, idea of this uh, sort of espionage thing that's going on the sh- on the on the station it was just really engaging and you know Babylon Five was I, I guess the a way my friend explained it to me and I I always subscribe to this Deep Space Nine was if the uh, the more liberal version of the future and uh, Babylon 5 was the more conservative version of the future in mm-hmm. Babylon 5 there's more backstabbing there's corporations, people are greedy and everything in the Deep Space Nine future there's a little bit of backstabbing but everyone works to the greater good and there's social harmony and there's no uh, mistrust of people so I-, I love both shows equally but it was hard at the time to actually Pick one or the other, but uh, sci-fi is great. I love it. Yeah, so I I liked them both. I think the first season of DS9 is a bit weak. Well, most but once you get past that, then there's the cracking episode at the end, mm-hmm. the one that's just a two-hander between Kira and the Cardassian. Oh yes, is a fantastic one. And I know Scott doesn't think much of DS9. But I I want him to get to that and rewatch them. Because I think DS9, it is the red-headed stepchild it is, of definitely. the Star Trek franchise. But I think it's a great science fiction show that sometimes isn't great Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Well, I think a lot of that stems from uh, having, uh, oh, what's his name, Ronald Moore, Ronald mm. D. Moore being like one of the uh, head writers on the show, who eventually went on to do Battlestar Galactica. And he took... Well, he and Iris Stephen Bear also took Star Trek and turned it a bit darker than Roddenberry probably would have liked it, which, you know, your mileage may vary. It, you know, could it worked in some essences and didn't work in others. But I, I agree. I, I do think that Deep Space Nine is one of the most underrated of the uh, Star Trek franchises, and really, uh, I, I hope Scott does go back and look at it because. I think he'll find a lot to enjoy. 
Oh yeah. If he watches it now with a fresh eye, because mm-hmm. um, well, I mean, I've talked about this when we were over in Florida. That I, I, Deep Space Nine is the only one of the spin-offs I sat through the entire seven years mm-hmm. or four years with Enterprise. Enterprise bored me. Yeah. Um, Voyager, I just didn't like any of the cast. I didn't like Captain Janeway. I didn't like Chakotay. Neelix was a bit of an irritant. Mm-hmm. There, there was, they were all non-entities in Voyager. That's true, and there was never. Even though there was never, you know, a, a gelling between a lot of the main cast in Deep Space Nine, the secondary characters, uh, especially Odo and uh, uh, Quark, the sort of Casablanca type feel that you got between those guys was mm. was always and Quark's fun. family. Yeah, and, all that stuff with Nog and Nog going into Starfleet and all of that stuff was really good. Mm-hmm. And you know, it, and even you know when they even though it felt like a gimmick, it actually worked out for the better with bringing Michael Dorn into the show and then having mm. him have a relationship with Dax and all that. And unfortunately leading to season seven where they had to kill her at the end of season six, where they had to kill her off and replacing her in season seven. But I'm certain there was probably just a contractual thing and whatever her name. Yeah. Well, this, the actress what, wanted to leave for yeah. some reason. She wasn't contracted for seven years, yeah. which I never understood. Yeah. How do you contract them all for the series, but not this one actress? How does yeah. that work? I have no idea, but <laughs> yeah, I, I hope that, you know, if, if they do move to Star Trek deep space nine, which should happen in what, like 70 years, years. or something, <laughs> At the time they're beaming the internet into our brains with chips or whatever, that that eventually Scott will take a look at it again and go, well, well, this really wasn't as bad as I remembered. No, because um, he kind of looks at me askance when I said, no, it is worth watching. It is, it is. I think of the lot of the spin-offs, it's probably the best one. It is not the best Star Trek. No, I think is his problem with it, and he's right. It, that is a valid criticism, but it's a bloody good sci-fi show. Oh, definitely. And like I said, the thing that that did it for me was was the character interaction. It was it was definitely more than more than Voyager, and sometimes even more than uh, Next Generation, a great ensemble piece or a great uh, show to have uh, for character actors. Uh, it allowed people to get into these characters and flesh them out and make them interesting and they could actually go on and do a lot with the characters so i really i really love the show so i never found deep space nine as boring as the next generation as well i mean scott and chris have been much kinder to the second season of next gen than i would be i consider it to be at most five decent episodes in season two of next gen the rest of it is just boring tedium yeah, I've been watching along or rewatching along with them, you know, as they're doing their commentaries on them. And yeah, some of them, like the Measure of a Man one that they just did, really good. Mm. But then Matter of Honor is really good. Yes. Q Who is really good. Uh, now that, a, that's the one where they introduce the Borg. Yeah. Yeah. And the, there's one towards the end of the series with KLO, who ultimately ends up being Worf's baby mama. That's a really <laughs> good one. Um, and I have a soft spot for peak performance, which is the penultimate episode of the season, simply because we get to see Picard versus Riker in a war game scenario. Nice. Oh, yeah. So I like that one. Yeah, the, these are all, you know, I all watch these, you know, the next generation was over in syndication over here. So I remember watching these like Sunday night, 
at around 10.30 after the local news. And I remember getting with friends in college, and we'd all get around and watch watch these shows. And I specifically remember uh, them – they actually held off for the, uh, what, season four finale, the best of both worlds. And yeah. they played both of them back-to-back. And, you know, we were just so – uh, we were just so shocked at the end of that one that we were we were glad that we didn't have to wait an entire season to see. Oh, seconds. see, we did. We were getting oh, them shipped God. over from America because we were three years behind. We only got Next Gen in 1990, oh. so we were getting them shipped on videotapes. See, this is where the thing where this whole piracy thing irritates me. It's been going on for years. Mm-hmm. We were getting the Next Generation on videotape in the late 80s, so it's always been there. Because studios don't want to give us what we want when we yeah. want it, well, and we didn't want to wait. And it's disappointing that you know we've got these stupid region encoded discs. Oh, I'm gonna be and started I, on that. And I don't know, I don't know whether Blu-ray are doing that yet. Blu-rays are region free. That's good because which I'm considering buying the Avengers from Amazon.com. So given the debacle that's happened over here with our version. <clears throat> No, no. What's a, the only thing that I've seen about the Avengers problem was that I saw a screenshot, and I don't know whether it's for. And I might as well ask you this: I don't know whether it's for uh, censorship purposes or what. But there was a screenshot of the uh, murder of Agent, Agent Coulson, mm. and on the uh, on the DVD on the American version, you see the uh, the spear sticking out of his chest, and on the UK version, they don't have the spear. So I don't know. Yeah, they've altered that um, after the BBFC have rated the film. So the BBFC are now investigating what's gone on there, because if you've altered a film after it's been given an official rating by the BBFC, you've broke the law. Hmm. And there is, if you can actually go on the BBFC's website and they go into detail why they rate a film, how they rate it. And they've actually described in that scene that you do see the knife protruding from his chest, but it's a 12 certificate because this is very important to the the film. It's very important to the plot. It isn't gratuitous Mm -hmm. and it isn't gore for the sake of gore. And then it's not in the DVD. So the BBFC are investigating if Disney altered that after it was rated, Disney are up for a fine. And they may actually find all of Avengers Assemble withdrawn from the shelf. See, the, that's that's bad because over here, um, I don't know if you've heard about it, but uh, Amazon was planning on releasing uh, the uh, Avengers Phase One box set, which was mm. you know all the movies leading up to the Avengers: Iron Man, Iron Man Two, Hulk, Captain America, Thor, and, and the Avengers on Blu-rays, and I think. Uh, the ones that were 3D would also be in 3D Blu-rays in this nice little uh, Nick Fury suitcase that also contained uh, a replica of the Cosmic Cube. All so right. It was, was going to be a really cool sort of uh, display case for all the all the uh, Marvel movies up to the Avengers. Well, what Disney failed to do was pay the company that actually designed the briefcase – and uh, make sure that they had the licensing agreement to sell the DVDs in this replica of this briefcase that this company in Germany designed. So right. now this company in Germany is suing Disney for uh, licensing rights for the briefcase for the DVDs, for the likeness of it. So now they've had to delay the release of that box set 
until Disney and their lawyers and lawyers for this company get together and figure out what they're going to have to do to get it sold. So right. So they're not having any any luck. No, unfortunately not. We're also <laughs> screwed on some of the special features, including oh, the commentary. And I'm a big Joss Whedon fan. I would because I've got the film. I've had an HD copy of the Avengers for weeks now from a mate of mine who works at Sony. Mm-hmm. So, but I was going to buy it anywhere for the special features and the, specifically Whedon's commentary. And they're not going to excellent commentary. Oh yeah, I, I I can I haven't had any movies. Uh, well, I've got. I think I have Serenity, but I don't know whether I've listened to the uh, com- or if he, there is a commentary. I've listened to the commentary on that, but I have the the box set of Firefly. A friend of mine upgraded to Blu-ray, and he upgraded to the Blu-ray version of Firefly, and he gave me his uh, set of uh, DVDs. I don't know whether there's commentary on those, but you know, I, with good directors, I like commentary. Um, I wish Spielberg would do more commentary. I wish Spielberg would do a commentary. Any commentary. <laughs> yes, it so bothers me that they're going to be releasing the Blu-rays of Indiana Jones here coming uh, in a few months, and Spielberg isn't going to do any commentary for it. The nope. The 40th of Jaws is coming up, and they're no not going to do any commentary for that. That just bugs the crap out of me. Well, apparently the Blu-ray indie box set is going to be an uncut Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which we've never had over here. That would be nice. Well, I've got the I've got the American box set of Indiana Jones because Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom was cut. I'm not paying for inferior product. I refuse to give them my money. No, I, I completely understand that. I, I I hate getting versions of the film that that have been tampered with or fiddle fucked with because it, it it diminishes it just diminishes your enjoyment of the film. You want to see it in the way that it was presented, and when they mess with it, whether it be the studios or whether it be you know whatever boards that say you can't have this stuff in there, it just irritates the crap out of me. Yeah, I mean, because it used to be the other way around. We got the Dawn of the Dead ending where she steps up into the propeller blades. Mm-hmm. And you didn't. And I think we got, or was this the other way around? We got the full enemy mine and you got the bastardized 90-minute one? Or was we that the other have. way around? See, see, I don't know what uh, what would have happened. with Because I actually went and saw enemy mine in the theater, so I don't know what would have, uh, what what kind of changes they would have had in that. I think it lost about a quarter of an hour somewhere along the line. Really? But I don't remember which way around it was. But Brazil... We got oh. the ending of Brazil that Terry Gilliam wanted, mm-hmm. and you got the happy ending. Yeah, we got the happy ending where he drives off and everything's <laughs> fine. And oh, no, because I remember in uh, college I took a lot of uh, my last couple of years in college, I had uh, you know I had a lot of filler classes I had to take. So I uh, we had this prof- we had this professor who taught uh, film appreciation, and he basically took uh, films from like the 1920s. He did uh, decades, he did, like the 20s to the 40s the 40s to the 60s, and the 60s to the 80s. And one of the films he watched in the 60s to the 80s was Brazil. And he showed us the actual British theatrical version, which had the depressing ending where uh, Jonathan Price at the end is essentially lobotomized. Yeah. And uh, he was like, this is the way the film was actually supposed to be shown. And unfortunately for American audiences, you know, everyone remembers, oh, he just drove off happy with his girlfriend, and that's how it ended. And he says, you know, a lot of times, for whatever reason, there's tampering with the stuff, and I want to show you how films actually were. So 
I, I admire – I was glad that I actually – my first viewing of Brazil was the actual version of it. I love Brazil. It, it's a, I, I think Brazil's a cracking film. Aside from Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, every film that I've seen from Terry Gilliam is brilliant. Mm, I Twelve s- Monkeys oh, was awesome. That that was such a great and, – and it actually cemented uh, – oh, what's his name? Beefy McCutenstein as Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt. I'm sorry. Uh, as I'm shit with names. Beefy McCutenstein. I'm sorry. Uh, that actually cemented him in my mind as a great actor because he pulled off that just sort of wiry, crazed role, and he did it brilliantly. And I don't know whether that's – I'm assuming it's also a tribute to his acting skills, but it's also got to be in some way a tribute to to Gilliam telling, telling him what he needed to do. Okay, I, I hate to say this. I just checked my clock. I unfortunately have to cut this off. Oh, you've got a duck to the point. Yeah, i got to get to this, yeah. So um, Andy – Thank you, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, let yeah, me, it's all right. It's not a problem. I enjoyed doing it. Uh, hopefully, we can get together sometime again and just you know chat. You should do what you should do what Bailey did and just release our chat at the end as an episode. Oh, why not? No. <laughs> we've not we've not mentioned Green Lantern. That Green Lantern movie doesn't suck. Yeah, it, it wasn't as bad as everyone said. No, it wasn't. There you go. All right. All right. Now I have impetus to put it on the show. Yeah, just put it at the end as a special feature. Thanks again, Andy. I really appreciate it. Good talking to you. Tell the you family too. hi, okay? Okay, no, you take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingle. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is designed solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary drubs of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at just one of the guys, all one word, dot libsyn, spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N, dot com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers, and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast, and be sure to leave a review there. I'd love to read it on the next show. You can also search for me on Facebook. I mean, you won't find me there, because I don't have an account there. But if you have enough free time to listen to me babble on about funny book characters, you obviously can spare some time to wander around on Facebook. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Greenlander podcast. The opening music for today's show is Entropy by M.C. Hawking. Now... You probably can't find this on Amazon because it's primarily a YouTube song. But if you do want to go to Amazon.com, I suggest you go to the twotruefreaks.libson.com website first, click on the Amazon banner there, and you can download a myriad number of songs that have to deal with geeky subjects. While at Amazon, you could also do a purchase of geeky things, perhaps a season of Doctor Who, perhaps a season of 
Battlestar Galactica, or even a season of Babylon 5. But probably not the fifth one. <laughs>